When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The Other Hand is part of the ACAST Creator Network. Hey Jim, everybody, welcome to the latest edition of The Other Hand. A very special welcome back to Mr. Power, who has been on his holidays again. Uh, I'm not sure if he's anywhere sunny, anywhere near the Mediterranean this time, but I'm sure he's going to um, tell us all about uh, a little bit more about it, as uh, he he did the other day when he actually spoke to us from the sunny climes of, of Montreal. But now that he's over his jet lag and his tan is starting to fade, uh, I think that he probably has a few more words of reflection on what was a very interesting trip. It, it, foreign travel always does broaden the mind. So we've got a lot to get through today, Jim, as well as those reflections further reflections on Canada-Irish relations. But I know that you've got some, as always, Irish important Irish economic data to discuss with us before we get into some of the more international stuff. Yeah, great to be back, Chris. Um, holiday is probably too strong a word. Uh, I spoke at a number of um, events in three cities over four and a half days, so it was pretty hectic stuff. Uh, a lot of snow, very low temperatures, minus 13 when I was speaking to you from Montreal last Friday morning, uh, minus 11 in Ottawa. It was a BAMI, minus two in Toronto. Uh, f- f- fascinating trip. But when I was listening back to the podcast that we recorded, I noticed actually that um, I was being revisited by ghosts of the past or whatever way you want to describe it. I was sitting in Montreal airport on Thursday night uh, it's called Yule Airport, and um, it is also called the Pierre Trudeau Airport. So I had Pierre in my head. And when I was talking about being in the Canadian Parliament last Tuesday, I referred to seeing Pierre Trudeau doing question time. Of course, it's his son, Justin, uh, just in case listeners uh, believed I had 
gone back into the past in some way. But anyway, that was a an error, but I, I would put it down to a bit of jet lag and it was early in the morning. But the trip was absolutely fascinating. Uh, I, I mentioned the other day and I would mention it again, the really strong historical and cultural relationship between Canada and Ireland. And uh, as I also said, that in this country, we tend to focus an awful lot more on the United States, but the Canadian relationship, as I say, culturally and historically, is an incredibly strong one. And uh, I, I would say that the potential to grow economic and business relations between the two countries um, is very, very strong. And I was amazed at the Irish Canadians I met in the three cities who are just so clued into what's happening in Ireland and also so positive about Ireland and what's happening here. And um, many of those businesses dying to do business with Ireland. So it's a very fruitful trip. And um, it's, it's one I think I will be revisiting and it's one I will do a lot more work on because when I started last summer doing this piece of work for the Irish Canada Business Association here in Dublin, I knew very little really about the Canada-Irish relationship. It's strong, it's strengthening, but I do believe it could be a lot stronger. Anyway, moving on from that, uh, great to be back, Chris, and to do another episode of the podcast. You mentioned Irish data. Um, I'm not sure how interesting or not this is, but um, yesterday the Central Statistics Office published service exports for 2022. Okay, it's pretty historical, uh, I guess, uh, given that we're now at the end of 2023. But the CSO publishes merchandise trade data on a monthly basis, but it publishes service data basically once a year. So there is always a time lag. But last year, service exports out of Ireland, 339.6 billion. Okay. And service imports, 339.8 billion. So the services trade balance is virtually balanced. But looking at the service exports, the one I think we'd be most familiar with and the one that's of huge economic value added to the economy is tourism, valued at 6.8 billion. So in other words, um, foreign tourists coming into this country worth 6.8 billion. But excuse me, computer services, 195.7 billion that's almost 58% of the total. And these are the services sold by the multinational IT companies based in this country. Um, difficult to analyze what exactly that is. Difficult to analyze exactly what its economic contribution is. Uh, but it is clear, it is all related to the strong FDI base in this country. It is related to the strong corporate tax revenues we've seen in recent years and um, indeed it's partly responsible for the very strong corporate tax take we saw in November as we often say on this podcast Chris everything is related everything is interconnected um, on the import side 8 billion in tourism imports that is Irish people going overseas um, royalties and licenses, 135.9 billion. That's 40%. That is, of course, tied into the FDI side. 
it's tied into the IT, the IT side of the economy. And then other business service imports, 132.2 billion. That's 39% of the total. So I guess the point is, um, these service exports are really difficult to get beneath to see exactly what these things are, to see exactly what the economic contribution is. But the overriding message here is the inordinate impact that the multinational sector has on our service trade, as well as the merchandise trade that we've often discussed. Uh, but that's really all that's happening on the Irish economic side at the moment. Uh, but we, we will have inflation, we will have house price data over the coming days. So I will revisit those as soon as they come to hand. Jim, over the next few days, in the spirit of that, we do have a lot of central bank meetings this week, and they will be focusing on inflation. Uh, Irish inflation will be a small part of the ECB's calculations. And it is widely expected that there will be no change and that there will be that will be a response to the fact that inflation has been slowly coming down or in some jurisdictions quickly coming down we've had some inflation data out of the united states just before we started recording this pod do you want to fill us in on just what that all important american inflation picture is yeah the headline inflation rate at 3.1% which is the lowest reading in 5 months and the core rate, which excludes food and energy, at 4%, which is the lowest since September 2021. So here we have further evidence of the ongoing deceleration of inflationary pressures around the world. And indeed, yesterday we got inflation data out of China, uh, a year-on-year -year decline of 0.5% in Chinese inflation. So that technically is described as deflation. Um, it was the fastest decline since November 2020. And we also got producer price data, which showed a decline of 3% year on year. So here we have China experiencing these deflationary forces, the United States experiencing disinflationary forces. In other words, prices are still rising, but the rate of increase is decelerating. And of course, this is absolutely consistent with what we see at a European level as well, Eurozone inflation at 2.4%, the most recent reading. And indeed, energy is obviously a key driver in these inflation numbers. And yesterday, EU natural gas prices were at a two-month low, uh, under €37 Euro per megawatt hour. And the, the factors driving this, according to market analysts, would be um, muted demand at the moment, and ample supply. So, yeah, as we speak, Jim, those prices have fallen again today. They're below thirty-five euros for the what's called the front month contract for natural gas supplies. That's the lowest since mid-September. I think equally as significant, if not more, um, is there has been, as we speak, a three and a half percent fall in oil prices today, and the all-important American benchmark oil price is below sixty-nine dollars, which it hasn't been for some time. So we do have continued softness and falling energy prices, which is a very good thing for those for those of us that consume energy and not so good for those people that produce it. Uh, so I think that there is likely to be further good news. If, if all of those price declines are sustained, there'll be further good news on inflation to come. Uh, the 
the question arises, Jim, is to what the central banks are going to do this week in response to this inflation news and what they think the outlook is. And for me, this is really interesting, as, as it always is. And you've been very critical of the world. Well, we both have been very critical of the world's central banks from a whole host of perspectives. And your particular beef with them over the recent past has been this thing they've introduced, which is the, by analogy with the, a marathon, they're all con- claiming that the last mile is the hardest and that getting inflation down to 3% from 10% or whatever has been easy and getting it down from 3 or 4% down to 2% is going to be really, really hard. And I think you've quite rightly called them out on this and asked the question, well, what's the evidence for this? Lo and behold, one of our favourite economic commentators, Chris Giles of the FT, who is now uh, majoring on this very question, has an article today called, Is the Last Mile Really the Hardest? And it's really cool from our geeky economics perspective because it asks what's the evidence for the proposition and it cites uh, some research from the IMF. Uh, There isn't an awful lot of research on this question, but the IMF has done some good work on it and they have looked at all sorts of different episodes of inflation throughout history and they conclude kind of sort of well maybe it is hard but it's not conclusive it's it, there's no hard evidence that says always and everywhere getting inflation down at the end is the hardest thing to do and even there chris giles thinks that they focus too much on the episode of the 1970s inflation to conclude that it might be hard and he says, well, maybe the jury's out on this one. And I think we both agree. In fact, we probably have a harder conclusion and say that, that there is no evidence for this, notwithstanding the IMF's tentative conclusions. Chris is very interesting on what they're going to say this week, what he thinks they're going to say, because it'll be a continuation of their rhetoric of the recent past, which is becoming more and more and more focused on wage inflation rather than oil price inflation or gas inflation or all the other things that have driven prices up. And the conclusion he draws is that they're not going to cut interest rates until they get evidence that wage inflation is coming down and that the labour market, therefore, is a lot weaker on both sides of the Atlantic than it is now. And personally, I think that's nuts that they're going to wait for that. But the... um, The point is that inflation at the moment, I think, justifies interest rate cuts. The problem, the the thing that the central banks think is the problem, is wage inflation at 5.2% in the US, 4.7% in the Eurozone, and 7.3% in the UK. Now, even I would have to admit that those numbers look high, and that if I was a central banker, I think I could be forgiven for saying, hang on a minute, that kind of wage inflation is not being matched by anything like productivity growth. So if wage inflation were to stay at those levels, we'd be justified in keeping interest rates where they are now. Put my hands up, I would concede that. But again, I would think that those rates of wage inflation are likely to come down. They're lagging indicators. They're the sign of A, the tight labor markets, and B, those tight labor markets trying to catch up with past inflation as labour markets loosen further on both sides of the Atlantic because there are tentative signs that that is what they are doing and headline inflation itself will impact on wage demands. Uh, All other things being equal, as we like to say, the first thing that anybody thinks of when they're looking at their pay packet and their negotiations for potentially a wage rise is what's the current rate of inflation. It feeds in directly. 
and people will be noticing, I would assume, that the rates of inflation are coming down. So that I think all of these things will add up to lower wage rises going forward. There's no particular reason in terms of what I can see why these rates of wage inflation will stay around these these levels. Uh, the sociologist in me, and I can assure you, there's not much of me that is a sociologist, but the sort of political sociology of all of this would say, well, actually, a little bit of wage inflation at the moment from a political perspective isn't a bad thing, given all of the things that are unequal economies on both sides of the Atlantic have given rise to with respect to political turmoil. Uh, one of the things that struck me this week was the fact that if you look at the last 15 years in the UK, there's been no wage growth at all, hardly. Uh, the UK is one of the most unequal large economies in Europe. And I think that uh, the two things are connected. And finally, one of the reasons why we have such low growth, economic growth in the UK, is that we have such an unequal society. So sometimes I think a little bit of wage growth um, does you good. But uh, be, be careful what you wish for, I guess. But the conclusion is, Jim, they're going to be jumping up and down, talking about wage inflation this week and saying that's why we're going to keep interest rates higher forever. And I think they're going to be making a mistake. I agree with you, Chris. Um, I would expect uh, no change in policy from the Federal Reserve, the European Central Bank or the Bank of England this week. I would expect all three to basically come out and say that the markets have got ahead of themselves in terms of anticipating the downturn in the interest rate cycle. Uh, we've seen that being reflected pretty aggressively in equity markets, but also more particularly in bond markets. You know, bond yields have absolutely collapsed in recent weeks, and it's largely based on the view that the interest rate cycles will turn down sooner rather than later. And some people are looking at the first cuts being delivered as early as March of next year. Um, and I think the three central banks will be trying to dampen that speculation. The question, of course, is how will the markets react to that? I guess the initial market reaction will be one of disappointment um, because uh, market reaction amazes me when central banks, for example, come out and say exactly what you expect them to say and stating the bleeding obvious from a central banker's perspective, and yet markets tend to react. But um, I think if there is a negative reaction to that sort of sentiment, in the markets from what central bankers are saying, um, I think it will be short-lived. And um, I think very quickly, the markets will refocus again on the downturn in the interest rate cycle during 2024. Uh, but uh, it'll, it'll be interesting to see. But, you know, I, I heard actually somebody speculating and I nearly crashed my car this morning early. I heard somebody speculating about the possibility that the European Central Bank actually might increase rates this week, <laughs> which well, I, I find utterly bizarre, I have to say. Well, it, it is the ECB after all, and they, they, they have made similar mistakes in the past, as we have discussed many times. So I wouldn't I wouldn't put it past them. I too would, would be astonished if, if they did. The, the, the one thing that strikes me at the moment, Jim, looking at the economic data is that we always say the outlook is uncertain and particularly uncertain at the present moment in time. By definition, you can't always be particularly uncertain. But I, I'm sensing some straws in the wind that the slowdown that we have been talking about on both sides of the Atlantic, the European economy being flat, signs that the labor market in the States is, is weakening a little bit, that just maybe, maybe things that, that slowdown is slowing down that things aren't getting worse, that it is at most a slowdown, that nothing is falling off a cliff, 
Um, nothing is too precipitous. And that in some of the smaller economies, which may or may not be a, a marker for, for things to come, things might be picking up a little. So um, if the world economy turns out to be much stronger in 2024 than people currently think, I think we could be in for a bit of a surprise because I think the central banks, rightly or wrongly, let's park what I and you think about what they should and shouldn't do right now. What we know from what I was just saying, I think we know that if economies don't weaken further, and in particular labor markets don't weaken further, they're not going to cut rates. Um, I would expect um, that that market expectation for first quarter rate cuts, and certainly by the second quarter, to be particularly um, uh, disappointing for market participants. Those expectations will not be met. And if the world economy starts accelerating again, um, we could be in for a lot of interest rate disappointment. Whether or not we think it's right for the central banks to do that, I think that's what will actually happen, is if the real economic data, for which I think there are one or two straws in the wind, only that at the moment, might be stabilizing, then uh, I think that we are for in, in, in for interest rate disappointment. But the uh, And so I will have to swallow my words and say that, and acknowledge by the middle of the year when we haven't had interest rate cuts that I was wrong in the expectation and more importantly, the markets were wrong in the expectation and, and there could well be um, uh, quite a large reaction from bond markets if that were to happen. The other thing that's in, been interesting is that um, again, in the UK and the US in particular, and I'm wondering about Ireland, you could tell me, is that because longer term interest rates, bond yields have come down, uh, fixed term mortgage rates have been falling a lot in both jurisdictions. And there are signs that that's already having an impact on house prices and that house prices have stopped falling in the UK, for instance, uh, and mortgage activity is starting to show some preliminary signs of picking up, showing that ultra sensitivity to interest rates that we've talked about in the past. And maybe that big fall in house prices that we've talk, we've speculated about, that we've thought maybe that's what the central banks are trying to engineer. Um, if interest rates were to come down, um, that means that the, the fall in house prices might well be over uh, in, in, in the most extraordinary way. Um, but, of course, if uh, the other scenario comes about and interest rates just stay where they are for much of 2024, um, mortgage rates won't fall much further. But it has been interesting, hasn't it, to see how prices either stabilise or indeed pick up a little bit in response to the fall in mortgage rates that we've seen, particularly in the UK and the US. Anything like that happened in Ireland? In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches and fine jewellery? Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. As I said earlier, Chris, we're going to get housing data for Ireland later this week, and I would expect to see prices outside of Dublin increasing a little bit and perhaps price in Dublin stabilizing a little bit. So... 
if you think about what we've gone through over the last 18 months with elevated inflation, rapidly tightening of monetary policy, lots of uncertainty about the global economic outlook, uh, bordering on extreme negativity at times, uh, the Irish housing market has actually held up remarkably well. And I guess that reflects really the demand supply imbalance in the market. But um, if you're correct, and if we start to see um, a little bit of life coming back into the global economy next year, but also the prospect of interest rates coming down, and of course, uh, long-term interest rates also being reflected in lower fixed mortgage costs, uh, you, you could see the housing market actually starting to accelerate again in 2024 here in Ireland. The housing uh, correction that didn't really ever get started. Yes, indeed. And uh, it's been an incredibly strange two or three years, really, uh, in terms of the impact of COVID, the Ukraine situation, uh, war in the Middle East. And and yes, uh, the, the overall impact has been pretty muted on, on virtually everything from an economic perspective. Um, I think economic models will be remodeled after all of this, because certainly the behavioral and social science aspect of economics has really, I think, been to the fore over the last two or three years. And um, I suspect that those economists who still use sophisticated models to try and forecast the future um, are feeling pretty sheepish at the moment, because certainly the models that I would have been um, exposed to from various economists around the world would have predicted a much, much sharper slowdown in the global economy and indeed um, a much sharper correction in global equity markets than what we experienced in 2022, for example. So it's a strange world. I think the rules of engagement are certainly being rewritten at the moment. And uh, 2024 promises to be an incredibly interesting year with all of those forces at play. And one of the key ones being that fall in the oil price that I mentioned earlier on, because the old fashioned way of thinking about that is that that's a global tax cut for oil consumers and it is, is stimulatory. And uh, maybe that's one of the reasons why global stock markets are actually finishing the year um, at or close to their recent peaks. And that uh, the idea of an economic slowdown that would hurt profits is is not being priced into equities. Or maybe it's just about interest rates and bond yields again. Uh, as you say, Jim, it's it's very interesting, if if somewhat confusing. Jim, one person that I think is very confused at the moment is Rishi Sunak in the UK. And I know that you've taken me to task on many an occasion over the past while for my gloom and doom, not just about the UK economy, but the UK body politic, the House of Commons, Parliament, the way in which politics is conducted in Westminster. And I think you've thought me too gloomy. Um, I know that you've thought me too gloomy. I think that I have been vindicated on the UK economy. We're in our 14th or 15th year, as I said earlier, of no wage growth, no real growth anywhere, really. And absolute chaos again in Westminster. Not about Brexit this time, although you can see the links between what's going on at the moment and the original Brexit wars. We've now got the immigration wars and res resignations from Parliament, uh, Rishi Sunak, arm twisting his MPs ahead of a critical vote. Uh, speculation that Boris Johnson might make a comeback. It's all gone completely nuts again. Would you finally concede, Jim, that I was right? 
<laughs> yeah, I think I grudgingly have to, Chris. I, I mean, I, I haven't really disagreed with that much in terms of the body politic. Um, it's It's gone from the sublime to the ridiculous or whatever that saying is, is the other way around. You can, anyway. you can do it either way, but it's, it's, it's gone It's gone both ways several times, I think, Jim. It's gone both ways several times, absolutely. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the UK economy actually, you know, hasn't collapsed to the extent that you might have believed possible. The UK, like Europe, is reasonably resilient. It's weak, but it's still holding up reasonably well. You You would have thought, I think, that given all of the shocks to the UK system, both from domestic and external sources, including Brexit, in that that the UK economic performance would actually have been a lot worse than it has turned out to be. I mean, the UK economy, like the euro area, is basically flatlining and um, unemployment remains at exceptionally low levels there. So I, I'll give you probably seven out of ten. Okay, so right on the politics and not so right on the economics. Okay, I'll 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 concede that. Although I think that an economy that is up 0.1% one quarter, zero in the next, down 0.1 in the next, and then up 0.1 in the next, looks like a flatlining economy to me. It's not recessionary. I think we have to remind ourselves that the natural tendency of any economy is to grow. Uh, even the UK has some productivity growth, not much. It also has population growth. So on a per capita basis, we are shrinking. Uh, I think it's fair to say, uh, not least because the population is going up so much because of immigration, which of course is why we have all the rows in Westminster at the moment. Fabulous article today in the FT by uh, one of my favourite writers there called Janen Ganesh, in which he explains why Sunak is in so much trouble. And there's a lot of insight in there. And it answers a question I asked somebody last week I asked somebody that I know is a friend of Sunak's, knows him well, likes him, admires him, considers him to be a friend, and thinks he's a very decent human being. And I asked him why Sunak was making such a mess of it. And the answer that I got back from this friend of Sunak's was that Sunak is just not a politician. He's not actually interested in politics, which begs the question why he ever went into politics, of course. But Ganesh answers this question in a similar way and sort of fills in the gaps or the puzzles that that answer, uh, Sunak's not interested in politics, begs the question, well, uh, why is he not interested in politics? And the reason is his background, according to Ganesh. The background of Goldman Sachs, hedge fund land, Stanford University, means that he's used to people being reasonably rational. He's used to people being transactional in that you can always make a deal with them. What he's not used to is ideological nutcases, that even when it costs them money, will still pursue the policies, the beliefs, the ideologies, the philosophies that they've always had. And that trying to cut a deal with these people is impossible because they will always come back for more. And that's what it's like with the ultra-right wing of the Tory party, to which he has granted numerous concessions. And the Rwanda flights being just one example out of many. And it, no matter what you give these extremists, they will always come back to you for more. And so therefore, you have to stand up to them. You have to be a clever politician in terms of the way that you deal with them. Trying to deal on a contractual, transactional basis with them is just just impossible. Um, and I think he's toast now. I think Sunak is, is in his endgame, as the Americans would say. 
uh, I would recommend he start thinking about his his exit strategy, what he's going to do after life in politics. I can't imagine he'll stay in the House of Commons after the general election. Uh, maybe he'll follow Nick Clegg into Facebook or some other tech-type company in his second home of, of California. Um, but this kind of political instability, Jim, when you look at it from the very stable, relatively speaking, seat that you're in, in in Ireland, the political system in Ireland, for all its shenanigans that we know and love, um, is a rock of stability compared to the country that I'm sitting in. Do, do, how do you look at it? Yeah, I, I would absolutely grant you that. Uh, the, the story that has evolved in the Tory party since, well, before 2016, actually, but I guess it has really crystallised since then, has been extraordinary. Um, it's just been a total farce. Uh, but I go back to my point. I'm still kind of surprised that that sort of political instability has not had more damaging economic consequences. And I, I get the sense and from this side of the water that, that there is a sort of a sensible people are thinking that actually this is a finite process that at some stage um, in the not too distant future, Starmer is going to take over and that the Labour Party will bring some stability back to the UK political system. Um, I'm not sure if that's a naive interpretation, but so in other words, the shenanigans that are going on at the moment in the Tory party are seen as a temporary phenomenon that will pass to be replaced by something somewhat more stable. I think the aggregate economic data for the UK conceals a lot of problems. You're saying there hasn't been as much economic damage caused by this instability. And I grant you that, Jim. But there has been damage, and we can argue about how much. And I, where I think the damage is most visible is anywhere but the southeast of England. If you travel out to the regions, if you go to Wales, if you go to the northeast of England, if you go to lots of different places outside the southeast, you get a really visible sense, tangible sense of things going backwards. The, the streetscapes are tatty. The high streets are all boarded up and closed. And I know that's a global phenomenon when problems with retail, but they seem particularly bad in the UK. The NHS, which is something that you don't experience firsthand, you just read about, and you, you have your own problems with healthcare. The NHS really has fallen over. And the horror stories that I could tell you about people dying, not just getting sick, but dying because of the problems in the NHS, uh, the, the, the stories are, are everywhere. And I could unfortunately regale you with lots of personal experiences with this try to get a train in the uk at the moment and your your ability to plan a journey from a to b and get there in time for a meeting or a meal or a theater or a weekend away whatever it is that you're trying to do to get the train yet you, you can't plan anymore because the trains simply do not run either at all or on time the the rules in the uk are that if your train is cancelled or delayed by a certain number of hours, you get a proportion of your money back by law. The rail companies have to refund you your ticket. And if it's a really, really long delay in a matter of hours, you get all your money back. And all the journeys that I've done recently, I've gotten all my money back. Um, it, it, and, and everybody is, is it comparing notes about how much they are being refunded by the absolutely crappy railway system that we have here. I could go on, and I, and I, I don't want to bore listeners too much with my stories about, about how in a boiled frog syndrome sort of way, 
Britain is broken. Britain doesn't work anymore. And that outside the southeast, which is still that where, where there is growth in the UK, it's in London and the southeast. You can see that. I was looking, going back to our earlier conversation about house prices, about, uh, at a heat map of real house price changes over the last 15, 16 years in the UK, county by county. And you can see that in London and the southeast, over that time period, in real terms, house prices are, guess what, up a lot. But you know, outside the southeast of England over the last 15 years, Jim, there are exceptions. But for the most part, in the rest of England, most of Wales, most of Scotland, most of Northern Ireland, real house prices over the last 15 years have fallen, fallen. And that's a, a function of these regional disparities that I think are getting a lot worse in the UK. And that's where I think you feel, see, can touch the economic damage that is being done by this aggregate economy that isn't growing. Chris, in terms of the what's happening in the rail service, um, but it's it's also evident in water system, for example. Uh, has the policy of privatisation been an absolute calamity? My favourite screensaver, uh, which I have on my Apple Mac here, is is a professor, a mad professor, standing at a blackboard, pointing to some important words, which is that anybody in this class that confuses causation with correlation dies. And so there's something that we all do all the time. We say that these two things have happened, therefore they caused each other or one caused the other. It is certainly the case that the railways have been privatised and it is certainly the case that the British railway system is absolutely crap now, much worse than it's ever been in my lifetime. I think there is a connection between the two. I think there are other things going on. It's not just monocausal. It's not just one factor. I don't think we could blame just privatisation. But the fact is that the railway system has not been invested in. We haven't spent enough money on it in the way that, say, for example, the French do. Um, it was once an awful lot better than it is now. The journey time from my home city of Cardiff to London in 2023, the fastest train is now slower than when I first went to college in London in 1976. Wow, that is extraordinary. Uh, but the NHS hasn't been privatised no, so therefore it is a more complicated yeah. story, yeah. Um, and it's and it's not a story just about money either. It's it's about organisation, it's about management, it's about structural issues. It, it, it's an incredibly complicated story, but it is one that we continuously keep getting wrong. And what that mindset has led to in the UK, and this is something you're going to have to be very careful of in Ireland, I think, is that whenever an issue comes up, whenever a question, a policy issue comes up, our response now is either to stop doing it or just to cut it back. We're not growing anything. We're not actually doing anything to solve these problems. And the second thing we do is that when we have these very big economic and socio-political issues arising, I think, mostly out of economic factors, we invent this nonsense in Westminster to do with things like putting poor emigrants on a plane to Rwanda, which have got absolutely nothing to do with the problems facing the UK. And if you solved, if you think the immigration problem is, immigration problem is a big issue, I don't, um, you might be surprised by what happens if you solve it. Because if they do stop immigrants coming, the NHS will just get worse because all these immigrants come here to work in the NHS. Who's going to do their jobs when they don't come? Nobody knows. So they dream up these policies, the consequences of which they do not think through. So they either cut back, do nothing, or do something that makes the problem worse. That's the situation that we face. And it's just not grown-up adult policymaking. Uh, 
Yeah, I mean, the, the anti-immigration right, far right in this country, absolutely the same. Um, they curb immigration. You see certain sectors of the economy, including construction, uh, but the health service more particularly, and indeed the hospitality sector, absolutely falling apart. So, yeah, I, I do believe we need to be careful. But, Chris, uh, I, I guess a final point on this, you know, you talk about the problems besetting the UK you know, I, I was getting similar stories from some people I spoke to in Canada last week, uh, lamenting the fact that productivity in Canada is about 70% of that in the United States and that it's an economy that's pretty much flatlining at the moment. So th there, there is this sort of debate going on there. Uh, you look at what's happening in Germany at the moment, uh, Germany, which would have been regarded, I guess, as a bit of an exemplar um, is really, really struggling at the moment um, economically. And um, some other European economies, well, Italy has always been economically a country I love, let it be said. Um, I love Italians, but uh, it's it's been pretty dysfunctional from an economic perspective for quite some time. So it is not unique to the UK. And uh, from an Irish perspective, we really, really do need to be careful about what we wish for. Because the one thing you would not want, I believe, is for Ireland to start to go in that direction. I mean, everything we describe about the UK and indeed um, some European economies like Germany, um, Ireland is pretty much the polar opposite at the moment. OK, we, we do have struggles with the health service. We do have struggles with housing. Uh, but in some ways, they are symptomatic of economic success rather than economic failure in the sense we have a growing population, we have growing employment, um, a lot of demand for housing. So uh, we do need to be careful about what we wish for in this country. Chris, a couple of points before I wrap up. One is, um, I think it has to be marked, um, the inauguration of Javier Millet in Argentina at the weekend. And one of his first quotes was that it would not be possible to avoid a shock as he tries to stabilize the economy. Inflation is running in excess of 140%. Um, government spending, which he said he's going to take a chainsaw to, has increased from 22% of GDP in 2003 to 38% of GDP 20 years later. And, um, you know, m massive emigration out of Argentina, particularly of the young, talented people. So Argentina in total crisis at the moment. So Javier has a big job ahead of him, but he can rest easy in the thought that the people he has backing him globally, Donald Trump, Bolsonaro and others. So it really, really will be interesting to see how the Argentinian situation unfolds over the next couple of years. Uh, finally, something that we don't speak about very much, but that is ongoing. It has been, um, I guess, shadowed over by what's been happening in Israel since the 7th of October. But the Ukraine situation, you know, I, I certainly sense a global shift in attitudes towards Ukraine. Uh, last week, we saw the Republicans um, block a funding package for Ukraine. Um, an opinion poll in the States in the last couple of days showing almost a half of US voters think that Biden is spending too much on Ukraine. We're having changes to the treatment of Ukrainian immigrants 
being introduced in this country shortly. And uh, it's starting to shift. Support is definitely starting to shift. And that, I think, is very, very concerning because uh, if the Russians win this thing, God help us all. There's something called the Kiel Institute for the World Economy. It's a German uh, think tank. And they regularly publish estimates of who is sending what to Ukraine, principally the EU, the UK, and of course, the United States. Committed aid for Ukraine, according to the Kiel Institute, has now fallen to its lowest level since the war began and is down 90% on a year ago. People whom I respect, who know far more about this than I do, not least some people in Ukraine itself, um, that do stress, as you just did there, Jim, how serious this is. I think that uh, I agree with the analysts, the ones that I respect, who warn that this uh, couldn't actually be more serious. And the best quote I've got for you, Jim, is that if we do stop supporting Ukraine, Putin will win. Putin will not stop at Ukraine. There will be other countries that he will go into. And the next European war will will start as a result. And uh, perhaps even in Ireland, Jim, given the way things are going, maybe not. You are a neutral country after all. But many Europeans will see their sons fighting in that next European war if you don't support Ukraine. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.